With a list of folks who've addressed Bay Streets uh, or the audience, Bay Street audience at Toronto's Empire Club over the years is pretty impressive. Winston Churchill, the Dalai Lama, Bill Gates, Pierre Trudeau, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, the list goes on. Well, today, uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christia Freeland was there, and there was an urgency to the topic, the state of the Canadian economy. Uh, she faced quite a balancing act, explained that they weren't going to spend too much more money at the same time as promising that uh, the government's going to help Canadians get through this storm. She called uh, inflation a global phenomenon, uh, of course, because it's being driven by the lasting impacts of COVID-19, uh, lockdowns in China, Russia's evasion of Ukraine, and so forth. Now, she presented a plan for dealing with inf inflation, promising fiscal restraint, increased productivity no less, and delivering on recently promised programs that will help, help Canadians afford higher prices. It's all called the Affordability Plan. The measures total about $8.9 billion in new support for Canadians in 2022. She also pointed out that the social programs uh, will help Canadians get through this. Here's what she had to say. Taken together, immigration, housing, skills, and childcare are quite clearly social policies, but they're economic policies too. This set of measures will help drive our continued economic growth in a way that fights inflation by increasing the supply of the workers and the homes that we just don't have enough of. Now, keep in mind, uh, Freeland is in a bit of a tough spot because there's really not much she could do. At least she shouldn't be spending too much more money. $8.9 billion, I mean, a lot of this has already been promised, uh, but it's still money going out the door that may increase demand, which is part of the problem here. They're trying to slow demand down to bring inflation back down. Um, no new promises, though, for instance, no mention of cutting federal taxes on gas. So no breaks for you at the pumps coming out of the speech today. So how did she do? What did she say? What should we make of it? Joining me now is Ian Lee. He's an associate professor at Carleton University's Sprott School of Business and a former banker himself. Ian Lee, thank you for your time. My pleasure. So uh, quite, the, quite the tall order today for the finance minister to try to not only calm some, some nerves in these uncertain times, but also try to explain to Canadians uh, how the federal government it proposes to help them out a bit. Yeah, and I thought, um, I've been very critical of um, Ms. Freeland as the finance minister. I mean, I mean, she's a very uh, intelligent individual, I believe. Uh, she's got serious experience. Uh, she was a journalist for many years with the Financial Times, which I subscribe to. It's a very distinguished publication, uh, very reputable. She knows her stuff. Um, and um, I've been very critical of her policy up until now, from April 21 until now, because they were pouring stimulus in uh, uh, long after I, I felt that the uh, occasion called for it. Uh, in fact, in April 21, you read her speech in one sentence. She, it's on the record. Anybody can see this. One sentence, she's saying, COVID recession, pandemic, terrible, terrible. And literally three sentences later, she's bragging that the GDP is growing at 6%. Now, you cannot be growing at 6% if your economy is collapsing in a recession. A contradicts B. And, uh, and I argued then, and many others did, I'm not trying to suggest I had some special insight, that we were doing way too much monetary stimulus, we were keeping rates far too low, and we were uh, spending far too much money that was no longer necessary. We'd recovered all the job losses. The GDP was booming at rates much higher than before the COVID pandemic. And I argued and others were arguing, this is going to ignite the inflation fires that are already there. Well, lo and behold, guess what happened? And I'm not saying we caused it. I understand the supply chains being interrupted because of the lockdowns around the world. 
caused the the problem, but we made it worse. And um, so I was critical of her that. However, with the today's um, um, address uh, or speech that she gave, I thought it was as good as she could have done in the circumstances. I mean, she obviously is there to represent the government and tell you how wonderful job they're doing. But I thought it was a fairly reasonably, as politicians go, it was a reasonable uh, speech, reasonably uh, dispassionate. I mean, uh, objective. You know, she did go through the review and and reviewed the uh, the uh, events that had taken place and the experience and so forth. And uh, so I thought that um, and she did compare and contrast our inflation to other countries and said, you know, we're sort of in the middle and that's fair enough. And she ex- reviewed the jobs that have been recovered and so forth. So she did a good job doing the, to call it the historical review. And then she did acknowledge that, look, yes, you can talk about all these wonderful numbers, but that doesn't help someone who has to put a lot of money into their gas tank that they don't have. So she was honest about that. She took a cheap shot, unfortunately, at uh, Pierre Polyev talking about economic illiteracy. I don't like to see any minister of finance doing that because I think most Canadians want them to be above the fray. It's all right for an ordinary politician, but okay. The only, uh, my criticism of what she did wasn't so much of what she said, but <clears throat> she didn't really acknowledge, I don't think, that they had overstimulated the economy from the get-go and that they are a part of the problem. And um, so, and then finally, and then I'll wrap up this little quick overview. On the support side, and she called it, I've got the speech right here, and she called it the, I'm looking for the heading, I highlighted it, the affordability plan. I want to give her credit for it in the following sense. I've been very critical in the many, many times I've appeared before the House of Commons Finance Committee as recently as March of this year, in this idea of universality. And I know it's popular with some people, but universality properly understood when you decode it means not only giving support to low income people, it means giving support to people like professors, which is absurd. Why would we want to give universal pharmacare to high income professors or medical doctors or public servants? There's no justification. We should have our social programs targeted to low-income people, people that need help, not people that don't need help. Well, today in the speech, in her affordability plan, most of the people that she was noting there, it were, were, were policies targeted to people at the lower end, the Canada Work Benefit um, for low-income families starting this year, uh, OAS for seniors over 75, not all seniors, just certain seniors, $500 payment to just those renters who are struggling with housing. So I don't know if this was just politics as normal or if this was subtly announcing a change in direction for this government. I hope the latter, because they've been, you know, big on universal pharmacare and dental care and daycare. And it's just it's I really believe it's it's a squandering of scarce resources, a complete waste of scarce resources, because the idea of giving free drugs to a medical doctor making a million dollars a year is just, I think, barking dog mad or to professors or to senior public servants, or to CEOs. And so if this is a new policy shift that they're going to target from now on, well, then let's give them credit because that's a good thing. Not much, though, if people were looking for new new sort of measures in there to try to alleviate some of the pain for some, uh, such as a cut to uh, carbon tax, for instance. Not there. That was not there. That is absolutely correct. I think the... um, 
the you're right and i think there's a couple of reasons number one it would be uh against their brand if i can use that phrase because they're you know the carbon tax people and they're the people who think that cars and fossil fuels are evil and so i don't think that they would uh, would because of their own support it's not so much the media or the conservatives is their own base would say what do you mean i'm supporting you because you do carbon taxes and now you're cutting them or something like that but i also um i think the larger issue is that they're uh, she didn't say this but I think that they're betting, are gambling, speculating, uh, both uh, the Minister of Finance and the uh, Governor of the Bank of Canada, that the inflation is going to come down much more quickly. In fact, he has hinted at that, that, you know, well, supply chains are going to come back into balance in two years. Well, that's code for saying inflation is going to come back down because the inflation is up because the supply chains are disrupted. And so I think that they're making a bet. And they better, you know, if they want to get reelected, they better hope that their bet is right, because two years takes them up to the door of the next election. I'm more skeptical. I think it's going to take uh, more than two years to get the genie back into the bottle, the inflation genie back into the bottle. Maybe they will. But um, uh, and the final point, Ben, is I don't want to sugarcoat this fact. Uh, I'm tenured. I don't consult anybody. I can speak truth to power. I think there's only one serious solution to address uh, out of control inflation, and that's interest rates. And the higher uh, the higher they go, the more they're going to squeeze it out. And I lived through that in the late 70s and early 80s. Inflation went from four to five to seven to eight to nine. I peaked at, I think, 14. It took 20% interest rates. Did it cause a rip-roaring recession? Yes. Was that awful? Yes. Did it kill inflation? It absolutely destroyed inflation. Interest rates work. They hurt like hell and they cause suffering and they throw people out of work, but they work. Politicians hate those last few things that you just mentioned, obviously. Yeah. Ian Lee is an associate professor at Carleton University's Sprott School of Business. We're talking about uh, Christia Freeland, the finance minister, the deputy prime minister's keynote address today to the uh, Empire, Empire Club of Canada in Toronto, talking about uh, the Affordability Act, what the government is doing to try to cushion some of the blow of, uh, of high inflation rates on on Canadians. When we come back, just a bit more about uh, about what may lie ahead uh, here as, uh, as the federal government has spelled out how it will help. And just how politically damaging it could be if that help doesn't work. We'll be back. I'm speaking with Ian Lee. He's an associate professor at Carleton University's Sprott School of Business. We're talking about Finance Minister Christia Freeland's keynote address today to the Empire Club of Canada, which was really uh, focusing on inflation, cost of living, uh, touting the Liberals' uh, affordability plan, which of course is all measures that have already been announced. There was nothing new today, but certainly talking about the things that are already out there. Uh, Ian, you, you touched on this earlier about uh, her, her defense of the Bank of Canada. And it's an interesting one because maybe uh, threatening to fire or you know promising to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada seems a bit uh, over the top. But I, I would say that central banks around the world are, are, are deserving of some criticism because for a long time they downplayed or at least appeared to downplay the threat of high inflation. They thought it would be temporary, and it certainly wasn't, as you mentioned. Um, fair comment today uh, from, from Christian Freeland about financial illiteracy of those who would criticize no, the Bank of Canada? Well, there's two separate issues. There's just the, you know, I, I don't like to see the minister, the finance minister or the prime minister of any political party, <clears throat> excuse me, of uh, taking, let's call them cheap shots, because that's what they are. Everyone understands that was a cheap shot. OK. And people say, well, that's his politics. And I understand that MPs do it of all parties. Uh, so there's no saints here. Uh, I think it was Lincoln said there's no angels among us, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, and that's OK. But we expect a uh, the prime minister and the minister of finance are sui generis. They're unique. And we want them to be above the fray. 
Now, but let me now deal with your substance. Um, I did not agree with Pierre Poiliev, even though I think he's been completely legitimate in going after the government on inflation. There are millions of people suffering, and the fact he's getting such large crowds of young people shows that it is resonating. I still don't think it was, I don't think it was appropriate or right or correct to say, let's fire the governor of the Bank of Canada. <laughs> because no, yeah. even though we all say, and the prime minister loves to say he's independent of us, that's, that's a bit of a fudge. The minister of finance and the prime minister, let there be no mistake about it, are the final decision makers on appointment of the governor of the Bank of Canada. Oh, number one. Number two, they have the power, as they did, to change the mandate for the the uh, what the Bank of Canada will find a, a focus on. And thirdly, Ben, and I really want to get this point out very quickly, this has been talked about and discussed in various countries, UK, US, and in all these countries, we keep the monetary policy at arm's length. But I've read some wonderful papers that have said exactly what I'm now trying to say to you, that they're not completely independent. At the end of the day, you cannot have a government monetary policy going south and the government wants to go north. If the government says enough is enough, it is understood that you will inter- interrupt. You know, you will step in. So, so let's look ahead here. I mean, the, I, clearly the, the Liberal government has a real problem on its hands if inflation continues to rise and Canadians continue to get angry about it. Um, is there much more they can do to try to keep a lid on it? Or is the fact that uh, Christopher Freeland pretty much laid her cards, cards on the table today with no new announcements, but you know, sort of a, a recognition of spending levels and so on, do you think that's about as good as she can do under the circumstances? I think it is, but I do expect that the Bank of Canada going forward from today going forward, it's going to do most of the heavy lifting. And it's going to do most of the heavy lifting because we've known for hundreds of years, certainly a hundred years, Nobel Prizes have been awarded in this, that the using the interest rate lever, which is brutal, is very effective. Anyone who doesn't think that raising interest rates doesn't cool down the economy hasn't looked at the data. I'm saying that as a mortgage former mortgage manager, when those rates were going up 10, 12, 14, I was like the Maytag repairman. I have that those famous ads. I was the loneliest guy in town. Nobody was showing up to get any mortgages from me anymore. So my point being, fiscal policy essentially spends money. Monetary policy costs puts costs on us through a higher rate of interest. When you want to cool, when any government anywhere wants to cool the economy, you use interest rates. So the heavy lifting to seriously address inflation is in the domain, in the hands of the governor of the Bank of Canada and the governing council. She can try to mitigate the damage to the people at the bottom by saying, look, we'll do some little top-ups here and there for people that are really suffering at the bottom. But the uh, solution to inflation is increased interest rates. And let me put it really bluntly. They have to go up quite a bit more. I don't mean what we've done so far. I think we're going to go up another 75 basis points at the next announcement, and they're going to go up through the rest of the year. I think they have to go north of 3%, which doesn't sound very much, but that will imply mortgages of well north of 5%. And just for your listeners, so they understand, what is he talking about? How can you advocate that? I looked up the interest rates for the past 250 years in Canada, excuse me, in uh, UK and, and US. And Canada Golden goes back to the Bank of Canada's establishment in 1935. Interest rates have never, ever, ever in 250 years been this low in these three countries. In other words, we have been living in a fool's 
paradise for the last three or four or five years with interest rates that were essentially zero or almost zero. And it had pernicious, destructive consequences. It sabotaged the returns for pension plans. And secondly, we all know what happened. It encouraged everybody to go out and borrow like there was no tomorrow because the money was almost free and drove those house prices through the roof. Our rates are still below where they ought to be even after two big rate increases. We need to get up to 3 or 3.5% central bank rate, which implies mortgage rates of 5 to 6%. Yes, younger people aren't used to this because we've been living in this fool's paradise for the past five to seven years, but she can't say that because then, of course, she'll be attacked. That's where I think we're going, and the governor is doing now the heavy lifting and warning everybody, look, I'm getting serious, and so is Mr. Powell at the Federal Reserve. So higher interest rates are going to are coming, and they're going to really fix this problem. Ian Lee, thank you for your time. My pleasure.